What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Every family has an origin story. One passed down through the generations. Mine happens to be a mystery involving my great-great-grandmother left behind in Sicily. I'm Joe Piazza, and my new podcast will transport you to the gorgeous island of Sicily as I trace my roots back through a whodunit for the ages. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Guess what, Mango? What's that, Will? All right, so this may be a weird question, but did you ever hear the story about Norway's first skyjacking? <laughs> so I don't really keep up with countries' first skyjackings. Well, this one's worth noting because it's it's actually kind of funny, as strange as this sounds. But this was 1985, long after the golden age of skyjackings. And there was this lone wolf who hopped onto the plane. He got up to the front of the plane that was carrying 116 passengers, and he demanded to talk to the Prime Minister of Norway and their Minister of Justice. He wanted to talk to both <laughs> of these people. They weren't on the plane. He just insisted he needed to talk to them. Now, he had a gun, and he claimed to have more explosives hidden on him, but he didn't really have a plan. He just kind of let the plane go on its course, but then it lands, and he starts negotiating. Of course, you know the guy had been drinking heavily the whole time, so he wasn't the world's best negotiator. So first, he let off 70 passengers or so, you know, just just because. And <laughs> then he said he'd let the rest of the passengers go if the pilots would just taxi the plane on up to the terminal. That's what they're supposed to do anyway. <laughs> I know, but he demanded that they do that as well. So then once he'd drunk through the plane's supply of beer, he said he'd turn over his weapons if he could just get a little bit more to drink. You know, he, he wasn't quite done with this. <laughs> so he wanted another beer or two and... And, of course, when the authorities brought him the beverage delivery, they arrested him. That is so sad. I mean, like, he's like the world's worst skyjacker. And he didn't even take the plane somewhere fun or get his message to the government. I know. I mean, I don't really think he had a message other than that he was maybe dissatisfied with his life. But it does kind of get into something that we want to talk about today. Why were skyjackers so obsessed with commandeering planes? And was there a Bonnie and Clyde of skyjackers? And why was there a golden age of skyjacking? And that's what we're talking about today. So let's dive in.
Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Part-Time Genius. I'm Will Pearson, and as always, I'm joined by my good friend, Mangesh Hatikader. And on the other side of the soundproof glass, slowly creasing, I think those are our show notes, into these <laughs> paper planes and throwing... Look at that one. That was like soaring. Those things are gliding. That's pretty impressive. That's our friend and producer, Tristan McNeil. I didn't even realize he had such a good arm. <laughs> I had heard, you know, just from around the office, people like <laughs> to talk about all the things that Tristan can do. So I had heard he had an incredible arm, but I this this really proves it. It is impressive. All right. Well, we'll spend another episode talking about all of Tristan's talents, but why don't we dive into this one? So, Mango, what was the golden age of skyjacking? So... This is actually an era I didn't know much about until I read this incredible book. It's called The Skies Belong to Us by Brendan Corner. And most of today's research comes out of that book. And of course, we've supplemented it with stories and facts we've pulled from other sources. But listeners, if you're at all interested in this topic, definitely pick up Corner's book, The Skies Belong to Us, because it is fascinating. So the golden age was basically between 1961 and 1972, and this is when security at airports was super lax, and over 150 flights were hijacked in the American airspace during that time. Supposedly at the height of the trend, planes were hijacked nearly once and sometimes twice a week. Oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, there were stories of pilots who'd been hijacked multiple times. It was almost routine by that point. And so were passengers being killed during this or what What was happening? No, so that's the crazy thing, right? Like the hijackers were mostly pretty civil and the airlines handled it all very coolly. So often a hijacker just wanted safe passage out of the country or wanted money or to make some sort of political statement. And you read these stories and you can't imagine how many hijackings are just happening one after another. It's like people just walked onto planes and decided to hijack them on the spot. It's business people, academics, blue collar workers, people who are out of work, kids. I mean, there are more than a few stories of teenagers doing this. And supposedly every time there was press about a new type of hijacking, like skyjacking a plane for political justice, then suddenly that would lead to all these copycats. I mean, it's truly insane to read these accounts. But from my reading of the era, it really does seem like it was also more of an innocent time. And these hijackers weren't really looking to harm or even bother the passengers. I mean, that does sound weird to say. And and I know you don't want to downplay the violence because there were definitely some deaths and injuries, but it wasn't nearly as many as you'd expect from this time. And this, this is a little bit off topic, but from that same period, I started reading this book called Days of Rage. It's by Brian Burrow, and it's about weathermen of the 1970s. And one of the things that struck me was that this FBI agent told the author that in 1972, setting off bombs was actually a pretty common way to voice political protest. And it's baffling how many bombs went off without people getting hurt during that time. The agent was saying that there were over 1,900 bombings that year alone. And in an 18-month span, there were actually 2,500 bombings. Can you imagine that? 2,500 bombings. And so sometimes there were like five protest bombings in a single day. I mean, it's really unimaginable, like those sorts of numbers. And were there a lot of fatalities? No, I mean, kind of like you were saying with the skyjacking, that's that's kind of the thing. There really weren't. People tended to use these small explosives and they target these abandoned buildings. And the bombs were treated maybe like a public nuisance. And this sounds insane to say this, but they were almost treated as a way for a political group to drop a press release. <laughs> so you'd have this explosion, they'd get some attention, and then they would make their statement. And according to Burroughs, it was considered almost like the semi-accepted strategy for being heard. It just sounds so lawless. And I don't ever want to return to those times, but you can see how commandeering a massive Airbus kind of has that same appeal. It seems both quaint, but also shows how desperate people were to be heard. Yeah. So 
I do want to get into the golden age, but your bombing story reminded me about one of the weirdest things I remember learning in college. And it's that Yemen used to be considered one of the best places in the world to be kidnapped. Like, it was really just about holding you until someone forked over a ransom. And this was kind of the practice even through the 1990s. So I I read this one account from an American diplomat who was kidnapped there. And he said that while the initial shock of being kidnapped is, of course, unnerving, once he was brought to the kidnapper's lair... They greeted him with this beautiful recited poem. What? <laughs> yeah. And then they fed him well and offered him cot to chew, which is, you know, that mild stimulant. And there are other accounts of this, too. Like, so the Washington Post had interviewed this man who was, uh, he was given cigarettes and cookies and tea to keep his spirits up. And another person was, you know, told to teach kids English to stave off his boredom and allowed visitors. And he could go on these walking tours of the city and make phone calls home. And he was even brought reading materials that he requested. It's crazy. Gosh. I mean, I imagine the tourism board coming up with a slogan of like how they're the best place in the world to be kidnapped. And I mean, <laughs> I, I don't want to make light of this, but it really is just so bizarre to read about this stuff. I know. And it was considered pretty normal. And often after a few days when the ransom payment had gone through, the kidnapped folks would emerge with souvenirs. Like they take home beautiful curved daggers and luxurious robes. That guy who's read that beautiful poem, he still has a copy of that poem. It's insane. (laughs) But obviously it's not like that anymore, especially since like Al-Qaeda and other extremists have gotten into the act. Yeah. Now being kidnapped is much more deadly. And, you know, Yemen's four star kidnapping reviews have certainly gone down. Yeah. I mean, it is completely terrifying. But all right. Well, let's bring this back to the golden age that we were talking about before. So just just to set the scene a little bit here. This general period was one of you know, a lot of political unrest. We're talking about, again, 1961, 1972. And there's a lot going on. Think about, you know, the Vietnam War and civil rights and hippies and Black Panthers and, you know, the Cold War is going strong. And there's quite a bit of political distrust of the establishment during this time. And, of course, you know, there have been a few skyjackings in other countries as well, right? That's right. And hijacking wasn't even the preferred term. So Hijackers were mostly called escapees during this period, partially because hijacking was seen as this almost negative term that had been lingering from the Prohibition era. Yeah, you know, supposedly the term came from these highway robberies, you know, when a mobster would greet you with a friendly hijack and before, of course, taking your truck and all the alcohol that it was carting. <laughs> yeah, but this was a little different since they weren't, you know, typically mobsters. It was mostly people just defecting from uh, communism. Mm-hmm. And there was an early case of three different planes being simultaneously rerouted from Czechoslovakia to West Germany, where the defectors were uh, welcomed like heroes. And then there was there was almost this like cute story where six hijackers took over a plane in Europe. They made the pilot fly over Lisbon so they could drop leaflets from the sky. Wow. And it was just like printouts protesting the government there. And once they'd sort of distributed all their flyers, they asked to be dropped off in Morocco. I mean, it makes it sound so harmless, you know, but that people (laughs) saw planes as their only way to flee from their home countries is it's really interesting to think about. You know, like during that time, there's all this back and forth of people fleeing Cuba to come to the States and then people demanding that planes be rerouted to Havana. Yeah, that stuff is fascinating. In fact, the first U.S. flight that was skyjacked was by a guy who wanted to be taken to Havana. He took a knife into the cockpit and demanded the plane go there. But uh, what's also interesting about the time is that you couldn't really take a plane that far. Oh, what do you mean by that? Well, we're talking about the 60s. And there's one story we'll get into later of, of a guy who wanted to be taken to North Korea. But a plane just wouldn't get you that far. So even in the 80s, when my family would go back to India, the trip would take forever. 
it was a 22-hour journey. And the reason was that from JFK, you'd have to make a pit stop in Paris or London, and then you'd fly to Cairo to refuel there. And then you go to Delhi to refuel, and then you'd get to Bombay. Wow. Like, everyone on the plane was going from JFK to Bombay, and it was ludicrous, right? But actually, in Corner's book, a lot of the stories are hijackers negotiating as their plane is being refueled or then being directed or redirected to another airport before they're, you know, getting their money and parachutes, and then they take off for the international journey. But part of Havana's appeal was that you could actually touch ground in a communist nation without having to refuel. It's just so strange. Well, you know... I was looking into the whole Cuba-America relations during that time, and it's really interesting to see what was happening. So after Castro takes over, the Cubans start hijacking planes to land in the U.S. You're talking mostly Key West or Miami. And you know, one of the funny things was that this ad exec named Irwin Harris immediately started claiming these planes. His whole thing <laughs> was that he'd run a super expensive tourism campaign for Havana and Castro and the government still owed him close to $500,000 for his efforts. So kind of being a showman, he welcomed them as his own. But here's the weirdest part of this. The U.S. government actually let him auction off the planes and keep the money from this. Castro <laughs> was obviously peeved that people were stealing Cuban planes and fleeing the country. But the fact that the U.S. wasn't giving the planes back and instead letting Harris auction them off, I mean, that just got him angrier. <laughs> And that was, of course, the whole point. I mean, that's what the American government wanted to do. And so they let Harris sell 11 planes. <laughs> 11 planes feels insane. But at that time, the U.S. didn't really believe anyone would steal an American plane, right? Yeah, that's right. I mean, they were a little bit cocky about it because, you know, as they thought about it, you know, like who would want to leave America? And so suddenly in 1961, when a hijacker demands that a U.S. plane reroute to Cuba, things start to shift a little bit. So obviously Cuba becomes a big lure for American dissidents and people think they're going to be welcomed with open arms and particularly those who've been disenfranchised because Castro is telling the world he's building a new type of country. Yeah, you know, as one skyjacker put it, as he saw the runway lights, quote, in a few hours, it would be dawn in a new world. I was about to enter paradise. Cuba was creating a true democracy, a place where everyone was equal, where violence against blacks, injustice and racism were things of the past. I'd come to Cuba to feel freedom at least once. You know, but of course, that freedom he longed for wasn't really the case. I mean, Castro loved that these flights were coming in because it humiliated the U.S. And he got a little bit of ransom out of it. I think he charged the airline something like 7500 bucks to return each plane. You know, and also, th this is funny because the U.S. and Cuba didn't interact. But there was actually this quick form to make that transaction happen. And they would have to do this through the Swiss embassy in Cuba <laughs> just for being able to retrieve these planes. It's so strange. That's funny. Well, how are the passengers on the planes treated? Like, I, I know in some cases passengers were let off on the first refueling, but uh, I'm guessing that always didn't happen in these kidnappings in Cuba. Well, you know, often the passengers on the planes got a nice night out of it, which, you know, they, they'd be put up in a fancy Havana hotel. They'd be given cigars and smooth rums, the ability to go shopping. And then they'd just <laughs> be put back on the plane and they'd go home. Hijacking was actually happening so often that Time Magazine even put out a little guide for being skyjacked and, you know, how to make the most of that experience. <laughs> it's so weird. I was looking at some of the tips in there. Like one of them was uh, don't ring the button for the flight attendant since that, you know, that could startle the hijacker. It's so strange. <laughs> it also recommended the chorus lines and daiquiris and shopping for East German cameras, you know, which you could get for a steal in Havana's markets. That's so weird. And what happened to the hijackers? 
Now, this is actually a pretty different story. Casper was was really full of contempt for these hijackers. So they weren't treated like heroes. And why is that? Well, he didn't want revolutionaries in his country is really what it came down to. So, you know, when they landed, they were taken in for these brutal interrogations. Castro was actually convinced that some of these people were spies for the U.S. government. You know, and depending on what the interrogators thought, their fate was made up for them. Some of them ended up in sugarcane fields, which was just nightmarish. And, you know, some people were lashed and beaten and the conditions were pretty terrifying. Now, the other option was being sent to a place called the hijacker's house. And at one point, this building, which was just like two stories tall, it had 60 hijackers there. What? <laughs> they got a stipend of, I think it was 40 pesos a month, but the living wasn't easy. I think each person only got about 15 or 16 square feet of personal space when they were living there. Honestly, I, I didn't really think about the fact that there'd be like 60 hijackers stuck in one communist house. It kind of sounds like the worst season of the real world. Like, <laughs> But uh, why did people still come to Cuba? I don't know, Mango. I've seen some pretty terrible seasons of the real world. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, to, to your question, I, I have read a few accounts of this. And you know, even though the information about the conditions in Cuba was being covered by the press and spreading to the U.S., people were still just kind of hopelessly starry-eyed that Castro would see their case differently. Actually, let, let me just quote Corner here. He says, um, Every skyjacker was an optimist at heart, supremely confident that his story would be the one to touch Castro. The 28-year-old heir to a New Mexico real estate fortune, he hijacked a Delta Airlines jet while inexplicably dressed as a cowboy. You've got <laughs> a sociology student from Kalamazoo, Michigan, who wanted to study communism firsthand. You've also got a 34-year-old Cuban exile, and he diverted a flight because he could no longer bear to live without his mother's delicately seasoned frijoles. <laughs> so the list goes on and on. It's just crazy. Well, I want to get into what the airlines did and why it took them so long to fight back. But before that, let's take a quick break. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes... I guess identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for, for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Uh, thank God for the limits. Every time I have like one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a, in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. <laughs> oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics. 
as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So welcome back to Part-Time Genius, and we're talking about the golden age of hijacking. Will, did I ever tell you about the time I was in the Kathmandu airport? Uh, I'm not sure. Maybe. <laughs> so this was in 1999, just before the millennium, and I was done with my study abroad program and leaving a few days early just to visit my relatives in India. And at the front of the airport in Kathmandu, there was an x-ray machine. But the line for it was insane. And, you know, I'm curious, so I, I looked a little closer. And for a single machine, there was just so much bureaucracy going on around it. Like, there was one guy who was barking orders, making sure you took all your belongings and put them on the conveyor belt in the right order. And then there was someone else kind of rearranging and repacking them as they fed into this x-ray machine. And then there was a third guy on the other side, and he was meticulously putting stickers on each bag to show it had gone through the machine. But no one was actually looking at the x-ray part. (laughs) So did you end up saying anything? I mean, who do you tell, right? Like, I, I just kind of noticed and laughed it off. And that's usually where I cut the story off. But this is the scary part. So someone else must have been noticing, too, because two or three days later, the same afternoon flight I took from Kathmandu to Delhi on the same airline was actually hijacked. Oh, no. Yeah, it's insane, right? So they took the plane to Afghanistan and it was tense. There were people on the tarmac for two days. I was glued to the TV because I was really afraid I knew someone on the plane. Uh, this was also a flight that I thought about taking, you know, postponing my trip by two days. But thankfully, no one on the plane was hurt. And this was pre-9-11. So it was before there were these really strict security measures at most of these airports. I, I think when I flew out of Philadelphia that summer earlier for my trip, my parents even dropped me off at the gate before I went. And I, I'm not sure if you remember that, but like people could actually go to the gates or receive you there. It's crazy. Yeah. But it's almost hard to remember what security used to look like in the 80s or 90s, let alone in the 60s. Yeah, that's true. I mean, security was definitely lax in the 60s. And it's pretty fascinating to read about it because, you know, the the responsibility was pretty much on the airlines to maintain that security. So why is that? Well, they didn't want to spend money on the security to stop these hijackings. I mean, their their big thing was no violence. And when they did this risk-benefit analysis and they decided to calculate it out, the way they saw it was, As long as the passengers weren't being harmed, it was actually cheaper for the airlines to just comply with a hijacker. They'd agree to send them on a joyride, maybe give them a little bit of ransom money. 
and just deal with all the canceled flights that happened because of this. And that was all seen as preferable rather than paying for more security at the airports. And, you know, you also look at ticket sales at the time. I mean, they were at an all-time high. And the airlines believe that subjecting people to checking bags and patting them down was, was kind of like treating them like criminals. And so they didn't want ticket sales to drop from any of these measures, so they fought tooth and nail against adding any security. In fact, they had a really strong lobbying arm just to prevent that from happening. It's really weird to think about that. Airlines weren't actually trying to lessen the threat of hijackings. Yeah. And it's also interesting that, like, skyjacking evolved and how it evolved. Like, people were stealing planes in the 1960s, and it was always to fly to a different country. But the airlines were caught off guard the first time someone actually demanded a ransom. Oh, why would that be? I guess it just didn't occur to them. Like, they thought that skyjackers were a higher class of criminal and just interested in safe passage. But that changed with this guy named uh, Arthur Gates Barkley in 1963. So Barkley was this truck driver who was let go from his job and had a lot of court cases that he'd filed and just wasn't winning any of them. One was over a $500 tax bill, which he claimed was miscalculated. Anyway, he was disgruntled and he petitioned the Supreme Court, who of course didn't want to hear his case. And he was so angry that no one was listening that he decided to hijack a plane. So does he take it to Cuba or where does he go? No, in fact, the pilots were stunned when he sent it only 30 miles off course to Dulles, Virginia. He wanted a $100 million ransom from the Supreme Court's coffers. He was specific about that <laughs> in exchange for the safety of the passengers on the plane. And this is an insane ask, right? Like $100 million is a lot of money. And he's clearly desperate and not in his right mind. And of course, the airline is totally unprepared. So instead, they bring him $100,000, which is a little less than $100 million. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that's what quick calculation that I think that's a thousand times less than a hundred million, but even a hundred thousand dollars. I mean, that's still a lot of money. Yeah, but he was pissed. So there's this dance where he gets the pilots to take off and then he lands again trying to get his full hundred million dollars. And this time the feds are ready. They just shoot out the landing gear and everyone on board escapes out this back hatch while he's distracted. In fact, there's this uh, great story of a photojournalist on board who waits to be the last person and he coolly snaps a photo of Barkley just angry in a pile of $100 bills before he jumps out the hatch. Wow. <laughs> and then the feds come on board to arrest him. But the interesting thing is how the hijacker's spouse responded once Barkley was arrested. So instead of feigning ignorance, like you'd imagine most wives of criminals might, she was almost supportive. Like she was filmed in front of boxes and boxes of legal correspondence that Barkley had been sending out. And she said kind of what we we're saying at the top of this show, that this was an act of a person who didn't have a voice. And as she put it, quote, he believes in this country and the Constitution. He believes in what he was fighting for in World War II, but the government wouldn't even listen to him. He did it to get someone to pay attention to him. He was trying to help us, but he made it worse. Yeah, and you can sense the desperation there, but yeah, there was this genuine public rooting for the outlaw at that time. And of course, those weren't the only types of criminals. You know, there's the D.B. Cooper hijacking, which also emerged in this era. It was the mm -hmm. suave gentleman robber who hijacked a plane and parachuted off with all these bags full of money. And, of course, there's the story of Holder and Kirkow, who I, I know you want to talk about in a little bit. Yeah. You know, there was lots of glamour in this crime, but you know, the airlines were just absolutely resistant to doing anything to prevent it. In fact, you know, there's this memo from 1968 that Eastern Airlines sent out to all employees, and it made it clear that all attempts at heroism by the pilots were totally forbidden. And instead, all cockpits were equipped with the flight to Cuba charts, you know, regardless <laughs> of their destination. They had to know how to get there. 
They also had these little cards to show them how to communicate with the Cuban ground crew in Spanish once they arrived. That's so weird. And it's odd that that's the best that the airlines and the government, you know, could come up with. Well, you know, there were a few ideas that cropped up to try to soothe the problem without adding the burden of security, of course. Oh, yeah. So I'm curious. What, what are some of these? Well, some seem smart on the surface. We're, we're talking about 1968 here, and the State Department offered free one-way tickets to Cuba for anyone who wanted to go. And this was on the condition that people wouldn't return. <laughs> of course, you know, Castro wasn't having any of that. He didn't want them in his country. And Yeah, of course not. Yeah, and in 1969, the FAA entertained all sorts of ideas. One of these included building a replica Havana airport in South Florida just to trick the hijackers. <laughs> then as they really got into it, they, they realized, you know, that might be expensive to build. But, you know, they also considered things like trap doors or giving flight attendants tranquilizer darts and you know, one of the proposals from the public was to make all passengers wear boxing gloves so that they couldn't operate a gun on board. <laughs> there was another. Let's see what else here. You know, you've got uh, you could you could play the Cuban national anthem and see who stands up, I guess. And it just it started to get silly. But, you know, people were just resigned to the fact that this is what air travel was. And in 1968, the Pittsburgh Press's editorial board wrote an editorial that said, quote, it seems the best we can do is add airplane hijacking to the list of things we don't like, you know, along with sin and high taxes. That is really such a baffling idea that everyone was just willing to accept this. Yeah. And I, I know there was also a little bit of a psychological profiling that got popular at the time, too, you know, to try to better understand the mind of these criminals. Oh, yeah. I was looking to this as well. So, so you're talking about the David Hubbard and, and, and all that psychoanalysis stuff, right? Yeah, it's fascinating to me. So Hubbard interviewed, I, I think, 30 or 40 skyjackers and came away believing that they all shared a similar past. He was this like pop psychiatrist who became really popular. And uh, he assumed that all skyjackers had strict religious moms. They had dads who were alcoholics. They'd been bullied. And this is sort of the um, clincher that they were all bad and incompetent with women. And that last part is important because that's what made them interested in airplanes, hmm. which he saw as a stand-in for their members triumphing over gravity. Oh, God, these theories. <laughs> you know, and Hubbard was actually propped up by the airlines because he thought skyjackers were too smart to be stopped by any of these security measures. And so that suited the airlines because it took the blame off of them. That's right. You know, instead, he thought that if the public linked these crimes to sexual inadequacy and also trained more female astronauts to make flying seem less macho, I guess, the crimes might then stop. What a character and what a bizarre time. Well, let's quickly talk about Roger Holder and Kathy Kirko and how the government finally put a stop to skyjacking. But first, why don't we pause for a little break? Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. 
My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. New year, new name, new energy, but... Same old us. Oh, yeah. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. But that's not all. We will also have special guests to add their thoughts on the topics, as well as break down different political issues with local activists in their community. If you like to be informed and to expand your thoughts, listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Elia Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. i never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true, and I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things, and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Part-Time Genius. Now, Mango, I think you wanted to tell us a little bit about Roger Holder and Kathy Kirkow and and their whole story. So do you, you want to dive into that? Yeah, that's right. So they're the Bonnie and Clyde of air travel, for sure. Uh, honestly, for anyone who really wants to hear the story, you have to go get Brendan Corner's incredible book because his reporting is incredible. But here's the 50 cent version. So Roger Holder had this really, really rough upbringing. His dad was devout and a good military man, and he moved the family in good faith to Oregon. But he didn't realize how rough it was going to be for the family. Roger had this terrible time as a child, like his family tries to move in and then someone won't rent them the house once they realize the family's black. Uh, Roger and his siblings are beaten and bullied mercilessly in this very racist town. They end up in the hospital. It's truly horrific. He's incredibly smart, but other than building model planes and then juggling girlfriends when he's a little older because he's smooth and good looking, there isn't much of a story. But for a few reasons, he ends up enlisting in Vietnam. And he's an incredible soldier. Like, he's on a number of high-profile teams and missions, but along the way, he sees horrific things, and he starts using marijuana to self-medicate, you know, which is common. But at the time, the army and the military were going after any sort of drug use. And when he's caught, he's massively demoted. Like, he has PTSD, and after winning all these honors, he's essentially revoked of any honor, and he's a private again. And he can't take that sort of disrespect after serving for his country and putting his life at risk. 
so he ends up AWOL at home, which is when he meets Kathy Kirkow. She's someone who grew up in the same town as him, but she's now selling pot and working at a massage parlor in San Diego, and they kind of fall for each other really fast. She has a thing for smart, dangerous men, and they're both really sexy. And Holder's into astrology. He's determined that meeting Kathy was fate and that they're destined for something big. And when Angela Davis, the Black Panther and professor, is imprisoned, Holder and Kirkow decide to hijack a plane to get her out of prison. But before they do, Kathy famously asks Holder, what do you wear to a hijacking? Like she wanted to be dressed for the event. Wow. Anyway, their story gets much crazier. They actually get $500,000 in ransom. They try to fly to North Korea, but then they end up flying to Algiers where they join Eldridge Cleaver and this international section of the Black Panthers. And eventually they run for 14 years. They live it up in Algiers. They meet all these like famous people in France, like they're drinking buddies with Sartre and like all these other like philosophers and artists and celebrities. And Kirkow becomes a socialite. I mean, they're everything that was glamorous about that era. But they're also kind of sort of the last remnants of it. It is just such a strange story. Art, but do you want to tell the listeners what, what ended up happening to him? So this is the weirdest part. Kathy Kirkow is still at large. Like, no one's ever <laughs> found her. And the theory is that she fled to Switzerland with a fake passport and then just disappeared. She was amazing at languages. And it's just a crazy story. And Holder, along the way, he had some more mental problems. And he decided to come back to the States and turn himself in. But kind of underlining how much people really didn't care about skyjackings 15 years after the era. He only got something like three years in a medium security jail in North Carolina. It's just an insane story. And, you know, and Kathy Kirkow, if you're out there, we'd love for you to be a guest on the show. You know, you can hit us on Facebook or Twitter <laughs> or on our 24-7 Fact Hotline. I mean, actually, it's 24-7 for a reason, right, Mango? <laughs> yeah, definitely. <laughs> But, you know, of course, stories like Holder and Kirkow stopped once security measures were put in place at these airports. And that was in 1973. And then there was an agreement that was made with Cuba to return hijackers. Basically, both the government and the airlines knew something had to be done to curb this epidemic. And according to the book we've been talking about, The Skies Belong to Us, when security was tightened, reporters were excited to report the backlash from travelers. So they stalked these giant security lines trying to get quotes, but... There actually really weren't any. And people just seemed to accept that there needed to be a trade-off and were happy to go through metal detectors and weapons checks just to feel more safe. Yeah, and of course the airlines just grumbled about the inconvenience and price tag, I'm sure, right? Yeah, so there was a University of Chicago economist who looked into this and, and said that the cost of deterring a single hijacking was as high as $9.25 million. Wow. You know, the public was on board and ticket sales went up and it kind of closed the chapter on this golden age of skyjacking. What a bizarre era in uh, American history. But, you know, before we land the show, what do you say we pause for a fact off? So I'm going to start. When the Super Nintendo launched, Nintendo supposedly made the shipment at night so it wouldn't be hijacked by the Yakuza. Well, we talked a little bit about D.B. Cooper, but did you know that the FBI has investigated over a thousand suspects trying to find him? And apparently the files in the basement of the FBI's Seattle office fill up several long rows of shelves there. Hmm. Did you know there's actually a bar that celebrates the anniversary of D.B. Cooper's heist? And uh, they do it with a lookalike contest. It's in Ariel, Washington, which I guess is where Cooper may have landed. And the festival has all this beer and live music, toast to D.B., or Dan Cooper, as he's called. But there's also a lookalike contest for people who not just look like Cooper, 
but also members of the plane's crew. <laughs> That's so strange. <laughs> All right, well, here's a uh, here's another weird one. In 1981, a 55-year-old man hijacked an Aer Lingus plane using a cigarette lighter. The only thing he demanded? That Pope John Paul II should release a secret prophecy. The third secret of Fatima. Basically, he wanted religious spoilers. <laughs> and did the Pope deliver? And not then. I mean, John Paul revealed the secret in 2000, so almost 20 years later, which I guess got lost in all the press for Dan Brown's book at the time. Yeah, I didn't hear about it. So here's the craziest thing I've read about hijacking. Did you know there's a Somali pirate exchange where people can bet on their favorite real-life pirates? Oh, wow, that's so evil. I know, it's pure evil, and I read about it in Pop Sci, but uh, here's what they wrote. Landlubber Somali civilians can invest in one of 72 maritime companies and hope that their favorite pirate band strikes it rich with the successful ransoming of a captured ship and crew. I mean, it's basically a fantasy league for pirates. <laughs> and one wealthy former pirate told Reuters that the stock exchange had won local support by making piracy into a, quote, community activity. <laughs> a community activity. I mean, it almost makes it sound sweet. That's funny. All right. Well, did you know that in 1969, Alan Funt from Candid Camera was on a plane that got hijacked? Now, everybody on the plane was totally calm because they thought it was part of a prank show. <laughs> they only realized it wasn't a gag when they looked out their window and realized they'd landed in Cuba. <laughs> I love that. So, actually, I, I think that's a great one to leave this on. Well, why don't you hold on to the Fact Off trophy for now? Oh, thank you very much. Well, thank you guys for listening today. If we forgot any great facts you'd like to share with us, feel free to send us an email, parttimegenius at howstuffworks.com. You can also call us on our 24-7 Fact Hotline. That's 1-844-PT-GENIUS. Or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you guys. We love hearing ideas for shows, ideas for Nine Things episodes. So keep those emails and calls coming. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks again for listening. Part-Time Genius is a production of How Stuff Works and wouldn't be possible without several brilliant people who do the important things we couldn't even begin to understand. Tristan McNeil does the editing thing. Noel Brown made the theme song and does the mixy-mixy sound thing. <laughs> Jerry Rowland does the exec producer thing. Gabe Luzier is our lead researcher with support from the research army, including Austin Thompson, Nolan Brown, and Lucas Adams. And Eves Jeffcoat gets the show to your ears. Good job, Eves. If you like what you heard, we hope you'll subscribe. And if you really, really like what you've heard, maybe you could leave a good review for us. Do we, do we forget Jason? Jason who? My whole life, I've been told this one story about my family, about how my great-great-grandmother was killed by the mafia back in Sicily. I was never sure if it was true, so I decided to find out. And even though my Uncle Jimmy told me I'd only be making the vendetta worse, I'm going to Sicily anyway. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, the podcast from Hell of Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Like our recent episode with sisters Regina and Raina King about the why behind their production company, Royal Ties. We have such a huge 
love for storytelling without walls, without barriers. Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listener. I'm Carol Fisher, the host of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister. I'm so excited for you to hear the brand new season where we're uncovering a 35-year-old mystery. But for those of you who didn't hear season one or just want to listen to it again, you can now get access to all episodes of that first season of The Girlfriends 100% ad-free through the iHeart True Crime Plus subscription, which is available exclusively on Apple Podcasts. You'll also get access to every single episode of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, ad-free and one week early, only available to iHeart True Crime Plus subscribers. So what are you waiting for? Head to Apple Podcasts, search for iHeart True Crime Plus, and subscribe today. Today. 